I didn't kick the bucket. <laughs> I may look like it. <laughs> well, I would uh, encourage you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning. And we're going to be looking at uh, two texts, actually, this morning in the Scripture, found in two of the Apostle Paul's epistles or letters, and uh, so if you would, go ahead and open your Bible, first of all, to Paul's letter to the church at Rome, the epistle or the letter to the church at Rome, and we'll go to chapter 11. Uh, There are two verses, one of them here in the 11th chapter of Romans, and another one in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians that uh, will be my text this morning for a message that I am entitling The Gospel of Sovereign Salvation. The Gospel of Sovereign Salvation. As I said, I've got just two verses for my text this morning, but I feel compelled that it is essential and necessary that we read just a little bit of the immediate context in which these verses are found. Uh, Perhaps it will be helpful to us as we look at what God has placed on my heart this morning. So look with me now in Romans chapter 11, and I'll begin reading here in Romans chapter 11 with verse 33. Some of you will recall uh, some time back that we were here in Romans chapter 11, And uh, we're coming back to this and then in addition to something else this morning. So Romans chapter 11, verse 33 and following. The Apostle Paul says, Oh, the depth, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now if you would turn to 1 Corinthians, the very next book here in the Bible, another one of the Apostle Paul's Letters, this one to the church at Corinth, his first letter to them, or the first letter that we have uh, at least uh, recorded for us in God's Word. There is some uh, thought due to uh, a reference that is in the Scripture here that there perhaps would have been another letter that Paul had written earlier to the church at Corinth that is not included uh, in the Scriptures. But if you'll look with me now in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, I, again, want to read more than just uh, the text, which is in verse 30. So I'll read, uh, oh, let's, let's just back up to verse 26 and, and read down through the end of this chapter. Here in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1, the apostle says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world 
to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being or no flesh might boast or glory in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts or the one who glories, let him boast or glory in the Lord. Well, we're going to look primarily at verse 36 back in chapter 11 of Romans this morning. And then also verse 30 here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But before we uh, get into this, let's bow our hearts before the Lord again if we could. Uh, I always... Uh, feel the, the need to seek the Lord before I would seek to preach God's word. I need to get out of the way and uh, and just trust that God will make himself known. I need to ask God to grant me grace that every word that would come from my mouth today would be resting solidly, firmly upon the word of God and not anything else. And so you pray with me to that end and pray that God will be pleased to speak to all of our hearts here this morning. Let's bow before him. Our gracious, loving, heavenly Father, you are indeed the eternal God. You are the sovereign one over all your creation. You're the God of grace. You're the God of glory. You're the God of our hope. Oh, Lord, how thankful we are that we can gather here on this Lord's Day and lift up our voices in songs of praise and adoration and worship. How thankful we are, O God, that you've been pleased to not leave us groping and wandering through this wilderness, the wilderness of this world, without any idea of what our real need is. But, O God, you have given us your word to make known unto us who you are, who and what we are without your grace, and that you, Lord, have revealed unto us the Redeemer, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And so we're grateful this morning that because of him and because we were led to believe in him with all of our heart, we are grateful that we can approach you in prayer. We're grateful that we can expect, Lord, that when we open your word and and read and share and, and, and seek to learn and understand that you, by the power of your Spirit, will teach us, that you will speak to our hearts. And Lord, we pray that you would do that this Lord's Day. So thankful, Lord, for each one who's here. We do want to remember those who are not with us, like Aaron and Elliot and the kids. Lord, watch over them. Keep them in your care. Father, we pray for Claude and Judy, that you'd be with them and comfort them and keep them, Lord, Uh, in the palm of your hand. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this time. Use it, Father, as you will, for your honor, for your glory, and for our good. In Jesus' precious and holy name I pray. Amen. Any of you ever raise hogs? We got a hog farmer here with us. Uh, 
Well, if, if, even if you've been around somebody else that's got, you know, the hog pen. In our opinion, many times it's not a pleasant place, is it? Doesn't smell good. Doesn't smell good. And most often, especially after wet weather, I mean, there is just mud everywhere. And if you observe for just a little while the hogs, uh, you'll find them just rooting around in the mud and they have their nose down in it and they'll flip their nose this way and mud will fly this way and they'll flip it the other way and, and they stick its nose right back down in the mud and all. They wallow in the mire, don't they? They wallow in the mud. Why do they do that? It's a delight to them. It's a delight to them. They love it. That's, that's what they like. Well, I share that with you to let you know that for the past probably five or six weeks now, I've been wallowing, but not in the muck. I've been wallowing in the Word of God. These two verses I've not been able to get away from for weeks now. We began to look at Romans chapter 11, verse 36, back on the 17th of July, and due to several other things, and then the blessing of having Justin preach for us some as well. I'm just now coming back to this passage of Scripture, but I have not left it myself. It's been with me every day. As I said, I've been wallowing in it. I've been basking in it. I've been delighting in this portion of God's Word. And I have found it to be, the more I examine it, the more I look at it, I have found it to be the source of great hope and encouragement and blessing to me as I've contemplated and meditated upon and wallowed in what God has to say for us in these verses. And so I want you to listen to these two verses again, if you would, uh, as I read them for our text this morning. Back in the 11th chapter of Romans in verse 36, here the apostle says, For from him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And that amen means so be it. May it ever be so. That's what it means. Amen. Of Him or from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our other text. Verse 30. The ESV says, and because of him, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Now one of these verses, uh, the one in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, uh, speaks of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty in relation to the ordinary, or generally speaking, <laughs> All things. Did you see that? This verse speaks to God's sovereignty in relation to the ordinary things of life. And that means all things, everything. The other verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, it speaks of God's sovereignty uh, in relation to the extraordinary, the extraordinary, if you will. Uh, specifically, in this instance, salvation. Salvation. Mr. Spurgeon once uh, made a statement, and I, I'm not going to try to quote it because I don't want to misquote it, but 
I'll just share it with you the way I remember it and what he said so many, many years ago. He said, nothing is so hated by the world and by the flesh as is that biblical doctrine that salvation of one's eternal soul being made right in the eyes of a holy God and acceptable before the eyes of a holy God, uh, such a salvation is completely, completely dependent on the free and sovereign grace of God. Entirely. Entirely dependent upon Him. Now, as I mentioned when I last spoke uh, back on July the 17th, my subject was the absolute sovereignty of God. And primarily there in Romans chapter 11 and verse 36, we didn't get beyond the very first couple of three words in that verse in dealing with the absolute sovereignty of God, where there the apostle writes as the Spirit of God was directing him to write, of him or from him, if you will, as it has it in the ESV. Uh, we didn't get beyond that uh, back on July the 17th. And we saw that Scripture, the Word of God, very clearly speaks of God's sovereignty. Uh, let me give you some examples for just a moment as we reflect a little bit upon what we considered last time in, on July the 17th. Uh, there, there are in the ESV, the English Standard Version, there are just three times in all of the Scripture uh, that the word that is often translated Lord or uh, uh, that one who reigns and rules over all, only three times in the ESV is it actually translated sovereign or sovereignty. And those three times are in Acts chapter 4, verse 23 through 28. Let me just... Uh, take you there. We'll not read all of these, but I, I will share this one with you from the fourth chapter of uh, the book of Acts, beginning with verse 23. Uh, we pick up here where uh, Peter and John had been arrested by the religious rulers and leaders uh, among the Jews. And verse 23 tells us that when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Now listen. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Oh, sovereign Lord, they prayed. They cried out to Him. Why? Why did these men do the things they did? Because God determined it. Because God purposed it. Sovereign. 
Sovereign God. Well, there are a couple other references I mentioned uh, in the scripture that actually refer to God as sovereign. One of them is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13 through 16. And there it basically says that He is the only sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. The only sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. The other reference is found in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, verses 6 through 10, where there we read, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. O sovereign Lord, holy and true. Uh, The second London Baptist Confession of Faith or the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith states that God has decreed from all eternity all that comes to pass. From all eternity. God has decreed everything that comes to pass. God is indeed absolutely sovereign in all things. Just like our text there in Romans says, from Him or of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. I found that nothing will give the believer a greater peace and quiet rest or contentment like a firm conviction that God is sovereign over all the events of his life. Nothing. Nothing can give such peace and quiet rest as an understanding of that, that God is sovereign over all things in our lives. Well, perhaps some of you may remember what the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Let me turn there very quickly and read this to you. Uh, I have so much scripture on my heart this morning. uh, I may have to hurry a little bit through. I will give you the reference and you can take the opportunity to go back later and and look them up if you would. But in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. The King James says, I've learned in whatever state I'm in to therewith or therein be content. Whatever situation, Paul says, I have learned to be content. Then the Apostle Paul will later speak to Timothy in one of his letters to Timothy. And he'll tell Timothy, Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. And that's found in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, Paul, like most of us, Paul was a man of like passions with us, wasn't he? A great man of God. But he still wrestled with the flesh, just like you and I wrestle with the flesh every day of our lives. He struggled with that. And Paul had to learn things the same way we have to learn things. And I believe that the Apostle Paul uh, had to learn his contentment that he had learned, as we saw, uh, through some very difficult and hard things, trials, many of which were far beyond the scope of what any of us have ever experienced or perhaps ever will. He had a hard time, didn't he? He had a hard life. Things didn't go well for him very often. But in the midst of all of this, he was learning something. He was learning to be content. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians again, if you would. Or 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Very close to the end of 2 Corinthians. 
the 12th chapter. You'll be familiar with this, I'm sure, as we begin to look at it, beginning with verse 7 in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul had been lifted up into the third heavens, if you recall, and God had revealed some things to him that he wouldn't even allow Paul to talk about to anybody. Amazing things that Paul saw when God lifted him up like that. And so in verse 7, Paul writes, So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me and to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times, Paul said, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Don't we find ourselves at times, time and time again, praying that God would take something from us or, or enable us to not have to experience what we're experiencing uh, again? This is what Paul was doing. He prayed three times that God would take this thorn in the flesh from him. We don't know for sure what it was, but whatever it was, it was, it was something that really bothered the Apostle Paul. Whether it was painful or whatever the case might be, it was a thorn in his flesh given to him given to him. Well, God didn't take it away, did he? But Paul said, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's what God told him. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast or I will glory all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul was learning contentment, wasn't he? Learning contentment. I believe that the Apostle Paul learned this contentment by gaining a more thorough knowledge and understanding of God's absolute sovereignty in all things, in everything. I uh, read years ago a book by Jeremiah Burroughs. Some of you may have read it. If you haven't, I would encourage you to read it. Great book. Great book. Jeremiah Burroughs was a Puritan preacher back in the 1600s, the early 1600s. And he wrote a book entitled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I read that book years ago. Recently, recently I read a biography of Jeremiah Burroughs. Not very many of them written. But I read a biography of Jeremiah Burroughs, and in this biography, the biographer, the writer of the book, he quoted Jeremiah Burroughs. And I suspect he was actually quoting from The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. But I want you to listen to what this quote says from Jeremiah Burroughs. Jeremiah Burroughs says, Contentment is defined not by our getting what we want, but contentment is defined by our wanting what we get. Think about that. 
Contentment is defined not by our getting what we want, but by our wanting what we get. What did the Apostle Paul learn? Contentment. What was he learning? To want what he'd been given. To want what he'd been given. You ever struggle with things like, like that? Having difficulty being content with where you are, with what's, what's taking place in your life. And all of us go through this. Every one of us, each day of our lives, we go through this. But we've got to learn contentment. And we have to learn it the only way we can learn it. By coming to realize and understand that God, in His great love for all of His children, never gives us anything that's not, number one, for His glory, and number two, for our good. Never. The contentment that we experience in realizing not only are all things of Him and from Him, but all things are through Him. Through Him. Everything. God works all things after the counsel of His own will, doesn't He? Everything that comes into our lives. There is nothing that enters my life or yours as a believer, but what it comes by the decree of God, by the purpose of God, the ordination of God. Everything. And once we learn that God in His sovereignty is in absolute control of all things that come into our lives, and then pause to consider that God never gave any of His children something that wasn't good for them. Then we begin to find our way to contentment. And we begin to want what God gives because we know it's good for us. Even though it doesn't seem so at the present time. All the chastening that we experience, the sore discipline, uh, the rod of God that's applied to us from time to time, the Apostle in, in Hebrews tells us that it's not for the present something that's joyous. But nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto all them that are exercised by it. In other words, it's good for us, isn't it? It was good for us, so God gave it to accomplish His purpose in our lives. And looking at that text from Romans chapter 11, we see that God's sovereignty, we see God's sovereignty in that not only has in eternity past He ordained all that comes to pass, but that He also brings to pass all that He ordained in eternity past. Let me say that again. We see that God's sovereignty is revealed to us in such a way that we know that not only has He in eternity past decreed or ordained everything that comes to pass, but that everything that comes to pass He has ordained in eternity past. This we know and we refer to as what? The providence of God. 
the providence of God. Now that word providence comes from two Latin words. The word pro, or the word, uh, yeah, pro means what? To see. To see. The Latin word pro means to see. The Latin word video. Or the word pro means before. Before, I'm sorry. The Latin word pro means before. And video to see. In other words, God sees to it beforehand. Everything that comes to pass, God has seen to it beforehand. He ordained it. He decreed it for His glory and for our good. The Apostle Paul also states it is not only of Him and through Him, but it's also uh, all things are to Him. To Him. This means that it is ultimately for God's glory and uh, what great comfort there is in knowing that Contentment can be ours when we realize these things. When we realize that what is for God's glory is also for our good. A very familiar verse, most of us probably have it memorized, found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It tells us that, doesn't it? For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Everything that comes into our lives God is using for His glory, obviously, but also for our good. What is it that Romans chapter 11 and verse 36 said? Of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory, both now and forever. Well, let's move on if we could and, and let's look at our other text here in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 30. Let me read it, that again if I could. First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. Here the apostle says, And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And it's right here in this verse where the absolute sovereignty of God is in relation to the extraordinary, uh, the specifics, and in this case, salvation. It's right here that we find that even many of those that will say when, when you ask them about it, oh yes, I believe God is sovereign. Yes, indeed, God is sovereign. He is sovereign. Oh, but you question many of them a little further and... Uh, they do indeed believe that God is sovereign except except when it comes to the matter of their salvation. Oh, you know, God is not going to override my will. That's basically what they're saying. It's up to me. I've got to decide. I've got to make the decision about this. Uh, my will is what will determine it. You mean to tell me that sinful man is going to get in the face of holy God, almighty God, the, the, the creator of all things, and, and he is going to say, God, my will is what will determine what you do in my life or what you do not do in my life. Ah, uh -uh. never happened. 
never happen. And so here's where we must take a very close look at the context in which verse 30 here in 1 Corinthians 1 is found. Right before and right after verse 30 is verse 29 and verse 31. In other words, sandwiched right in between uh, two other verses, our text is found that says that because of Him we're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. But verse 29 says, so that no human being, so that no flesh should boast or glory in the presence of God. Because of that, we must realize it's of God. Beginning to end, this matter of salvation. And the concluding verse here, verse 31, says, let the one who boasts of glories do so in the Lord. Let him boast or let him glory in the Lord. In other words, salvation, salvation from sin, its guilt, its penalty, salvation cannot be solely for God's glory as the Scripture says it must be. It cannot be solely for God's glory if it's not entirely of Him. It's got to be of Him beginning to end. The Scripture is very clear that God is a jealous God. And one of the things that God is very jealous over and about is His glory. His glory. If we were to go back into the prophecy of Isaiah, in Isaiah both chapter 42 and chapter 48, chapter 42 and verse 8 I believe it is, and chapter 48 verse 11, you will find there that the prophet Isaiah is speaking and he says, God will not share His glory with anyone or anything. He's jealous of His glory. And if salvation isn't all for the glory of God, then it's not biblical salvation. Paul makes it very clear in his letter to the church at Ephesus where in the first chapter of this letter he speaks so clearly about the things we're talking about here this morning. And that salvation, what God does to deliver a sinner like me and a sinner like you from the bondage that he is in and sin to his enslavement to sin, what God does is primarily for the praise of the glory of his grace. Three times it's stated here in the first chapter of Ephesians. First of all, in verses 4 through 6, Paul says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, having predestined us for the adoption, uh, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. To the praise of His glorious grace. Look with me now at verses 11 and 12. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. One more time. Verses 13 and 14. In whom you also, when you heard the word 
of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. These verses make it very clear to us that salvation is to the praise of God's glory alone. Another one of those very familiar verses, a couple of verses is found in the second chapter of Ephesians. This is one that most of you could could quote as well, where the Apostle Paul there says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Why? Lest any man should boast. By grace and grace alone are we saved to the praise of the glory of His grace. Now look again with me at our text here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, where Paul says that because of Him or of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Here we see what? We see, we see the gospel of a sovereign salvation. What's the word gospel mean? Good news. Good news. What are we seeing here in this one verse? We're seeing the good news of a sovereign salvation. The verse begins like this. I like it in the King James. Of Him. Of Him. And as a matter of fact, this is one of those instances where the King James is actually a more literal translation than some of our other translations. Of Him. Of Him, Paul says. Here we realize that the salvation of any sinner is a result of God's eternal purpose. So clearly made known in the Scripture. First Timothy, or Second Timothy chapter uh, 1, verses 8 and 9. There Paul says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord and of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He gave it to us before the ages began. Even before we were born. Even before we came into this world. We see it again in Paul's letter to Titus. Titus chapter 3. Verses 3 through 7. Where Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God's grace. Not what we do, but God's grace. A gift. 
a gift that God bestowed upon us. And of course, our verses here in Ephesians chapter 1, we're beginning with verse 3, where the Apostle Paul writes, Blessed be, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved or in His Son. Our text in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 continues, with you are, with you are. Of Him you are. You are. Notice who Paul is writing to here in this letter. Go back to the very first verses here of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 2, Paul says, To the church, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. The very next words that we find in this text are in Christ Jesus. We run on to them often, don't we? Often we run on to them in the Scripture. The words in Christ or in Christ Jesus. And these are the very next words in our text. Let me just say that in Christ, because of Him you are in Christ Jesus. These words express to us that which is absolutely indispensable. To be in Christ is indispensable and absolutely necessary because we really have nothing outside of Christ. Nothing but what we in our sinfulness deserve. God's condemnation, God's wrath for all of eternity. That's all we have outside of Christ. All but what we have in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places are ours in Christ Jesus. That's what verse 3 of chapter 1 of Ephesians tells us, isn't it? Well, I wish that we could spend a lot more time on what it means to be in Christ. But due to the limitation of time, we'll have to wait and come back to that another time. But we will, God willing, come back and consider what it means to be in Christ. The very next words that we find in our text here in 1 Corinthians 1.30, uh, in the ESV that I'm reading from here this morning, uh, says, became to us. All, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us. Now the King James, uh, again, says something that I like a little bit better. It says, are you in Christ Jesus who of God is made unto us? A little stronger, isn't it? It needs to be a little stronger because of its importance. 
He is made unto us. It's not like He just became to us, although that's fine as well. But He is made unto us. Notice, if you would, when we look at it like that, that the action or that which happens is not something we do. But it's what God has done. It's altogether what God has done. Let's look now, if we can, at what Christ is made unto us. What is He made unto us? Well, the first thing that we find here in our text is wisdom. Wisdom. He is made unto us wisdom. One of my very favorite passages of Scripture in the Old Testament and my grandkids that are here uh, this morning can affirm this to you because I've quoted it to them time and time again. But it's found in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, where we read there that Solomon, in all the wisdom that God gave him, uh, Solomon writes, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He'll direct your paths. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Why in the world would Solomon tell us to not lean to our own understanding? Very simply, because we don't have any. We don't have any. We don't have any understanding. Romans chapter 3 and verse 11 says very clearly there are none of us that understand. In our natural state, in our sinful state, before the grace of God makes a change in our hearts and lives, we have no understanding. What is it Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2? He says the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. He can't know them, much less can he understand them. And there is a vast difference between knowing and understanding. Did you know that? A vast difference between knowing and wisdom. If I go up here to my study and I sit down at my desk and I turn around and there's this Toshiba gizmo there uh, on, on a table before me, I know what that is. It's a computer. I know that. Do I understand it? Ask Justin. He can tell you. I don't understand it at all. I get lost in it. I'm afraid of it. I don't understand it. And when it comes to spiritual things and spiritual truth, we might know what the Scripture says. But we don't understand it. Because we don't have any understanding. We don't have any wisdom. Oh... If we look at our text in a few verses before our text there, verse 30 in 1 Corinthians 1, we find here the Apostle Paul saying, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Oh, we have a wisdom when we are yet outside of Christ, but it's worldly wisdom. It's not the kind of understanding that enables us to realize and recognize what God is saying and why He says it and how important it is. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, 
It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and what? And the wisdom of God. Christ. Christ, the wisdom of God. And he is made unto us wisdom. Isn't that what the scripture says? Isn't that what our text says? He is made unto us wisdom. Well, we must go on. We must go on. The next thing that he has made unto us is righteousness. Righteousness. Well, again, Christ is made unto us righteousness. Why? Because we don't have any. We don't have any. And if we were to turn to Romans chapter 3 again in verse 10, we would find right there that Paul says so clearly, there are none righteous. None righteous in the eyes of God. Oh, but we have a righteousness, don't we? We have a, what is called a self-righteousness. And we're proud of it. We like to pat ourselves on the back because of it. Our goodness, our righteousness. But how does God see it? How does God see it? Our righteousness. Isaiah tells us in the 64th chapter of his prophecy, verse 6, that when God looks at our righteousness, he sees nothing but filthy rags. Nothing but filthy rags. Never satisfying in the eyes of God are the filthy rags that we would offer to him. Can't please God with it. Can't please him with it. What we consider to be our righteousness is just filthy rags in the eyes of God. Look with me, if you would, at several verses back in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 15. I was going to read more of this, but time is getting away from us, so let me just begin with verse 15 of Romans chapter 5. We'll read down through verse 21. Here the apostle says, But the free gift, The free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man Jesus Christ. What the free gift of righteousness. Therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's disobedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord righteousness he is made unto us wisdom he is made unto us righteousness and thirdly 
sanctification. Sanctification. Have you ever looked closely, really looked closely at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4? Oh, we know this passage of Scripture, don't we? We've read it time and again. We've heard it time and again. But sometimes we get so familiar with a certain portion of God's Word that we really don't know what it says. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be, we should be, what? Holy and blameless before Him. That's what we should be. Holy and blameless. But we're not, are we? As R.C. Sproul often reminded his hearers, God is holy and we're not. God is holy and we're not. My. Paul says that God chose us in him that we should be holy and blameless. Now the sobering reality is that we're not what God would have us be. God spoke through the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. And there Peter is quoting actually from the book of Leviticus where he says, uh, Be therefore holy, for God is holy. For God said, You shall be holy, for I am holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. My, how thankful we should be for God's shall be's. For God's shall be's. You shall be holy. We're not, but we shall be, and we should be, and we will be. We will be because God says so, didn't He? But how does it happen? How does it come about? Well, clearly, it's needed because the writer in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, without it, without holiness, None of us are going to see the Lord. None of us will see the Lord without it. Thankfully, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in First Thessalonians chapter four. You may want to turn there and look at this with me. First Thessalonians chapter four and verse three. Here Paul says, "For this." is the will of God. If you spend much time in God's Word in the Scripture and seeking to understand who God is and what God is like, you will realize real quick that God's will cannot be thwarted. In all reality, the perfect will of God cannot be resisted ultimately. And here the Apostle Paul writes, as the Spirit of God directed him to write, this is the will of God. Even your sanctification. Your sanctification. Now what is sanctification? It's our having been set apart in Christ to be holy. To be holy. Just like the vessels in the tabernacle in the wilderness and in the temple were consecrated or set, to, set apart for the express purpose of being God's, for God's use. We are set apart to be holy like we should be and like we shall be because God has willed it. 
God has purposed it. God sovereignly purposed that those whom he chose will be holy as he is holy. And since it's God's will that we be holy, Paul would later write in his second letter to these folks at Thessalonica, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, these words. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, where Paul says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've said before what God's glory is. Remember Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What is it that we come short of? God's own sinless perfection. That's His glory. His sinless perfection. We come short of that. Oh, but we are not always be short of that, will we? Because God has willed our sanctification. God has determined, God has purposed that we be holy as He is holy. Marvelous, isn't it, to consider? Amazing to think about that. Don't forget that Paul is writing this letter to the, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. What was it he said? Right at the outset, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, called to be holy, called to be holy as God is holy. We are set apart in Christ to be made holy as he is holy. Hmm. Let me just add, if I could, that I believe that the evidence that he is sanctifying us, making us what we should be, is seen in our obedience and in our conformity to God's word. Are we becoming more and more obedient to God? Are we more and more being conformed to the word of God, what God says we should be? And that if we are his children, we will be then God is making us what he's called us to be. Last of all, in the fourth place here, Christ has made unto us redemption. Redemption. The Apostle Paul told the church at Ephesus in chapter 1 again of Ephesians and verse 7, he said, In him, In Him we have redemption through His blood. We have redemption through His blood. We can't emphasize too much how imperative it is for us to understand, as Peter wrote, to God's chosen exiles or strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia. That's who he's writing to. We need to understand that Peter told them We're not redeemed. We haven't been redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's the price. That's the price that was paid to redeem us, to buy us out of our sin, its guilt and its penalty. 
And nothing but the blood of Christ could, could secure redemption for sinners like us. The hymn writer says, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, we've got to trust who he is and what he's done. Can't emphasize that too much. The precious blood of Christ in that alone redeems us. The Apostle Paul made it quite clear in Romans chapter 3 and verse 24. He said in verse 24 of Romans 3 that we are justified by His grace as a gift. As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Our redemption from bondage and sin is a gracious gift given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we learn from what the Apostle says in the ninth chapter of his letter to the Hebrew Christians in verse 12 that this redemption that we have is not temporal. It's not temporal. It is an eternal or everlasting redemption. Forever. Redeemed forever. Once and for all, Christ died to redeem us eternally from the guilt and the penalty of our sin. Not temporal, but eternal. Well, let me try to wrap this up if I could. In conclusion, we've got to acknowledge, we must acknowledge in the presence of God and before men that our salvation from sin, its guilt, and its penalty is by the free and sovereign grace of God and that He and He alone will get all the glory for it. All the glory. Verse 29 and verse 31 on each side of our text here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us it's so that no human being will glory in his presence. And if we are going to glory, we must glory in the Lord for who he is and what he's done. We cannot boast but we didn't do anything, did we? God did it all. Sovereignly, sovereignly saves sinners from eternal ruin. It was interesting this morning, early, as I almost do every day, I read some things that come to me in Grace Gems. And lately, James Smith has been used in these devotions time and time again. He was a man who preached uh, uh, in the early 1800s in London. And it was interesting, as I read this this morning, as he was commenting on 1 John chapter 5 and verse 11 that says, God has given to us eternal life. God has given to us eternal life and this life is in His Son. And isn't that what salvation is all about? Rescuing us from death, eternal death, and giving us eternal life. 
And James Smith said, what a wonderful display of divine benevolence is this. What an extraordinary exhibition of sovereign love to rebel sinners such as we are. To God be the glory. To God be the glory for the great things he has done to save sinners like you and I. Let's bow our hearts before the Lord.